Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Josh Nicholson. Now don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. It's your host again here, Joshua Nicholson. Today's a great episode that we're having. But first of all, I want to talk about uh, a little bit where the show is at. We just crossed that 10,000 mark, 10,000 downloads. We're now available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, a number of different platforms. Over at Voice of America, and we also have a YouTube channel. So that's been going great lately. It's generated a lot of interest. We have a lot of great guests that are, are lining up to be on the show. Today, we want to continue a very popular episode that we had when we made, met originally with Joshua Stabner. And Joshua Stabner is a Chief Information Security Officer at General Atlantis. He leads the firm's cybersecurity efforts as part of the information technology team. Now, prior to General Atlantic... Josh was Managing Director and Chief Information Security Officer at Pine River Capital Management, where he established and developed a leading cybersecurity function. Previously, Josh spent 10 years at Ernst & Young, where he led cyber threat management advisory services for the financial sector clients with a focus on threat intelligence, vulnerability identification and remediation, security monitoring and analytics, incident management, and security engineering. In addition, Josh serves as the chairman of the FSISEC Alternative Investors Council and formerly served as a cybersecurity advisory board member for Pace University's Seidenberg School of Computer Science and Information Systems. Josh holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in computer science from Dartmouth College, and he's a certified CISSP. And also today, my second guest is Tom Baxley. Tom Baxley is the chief information security officer at the uh, Balianci Asset Management, BAM. He joined BAM in August 2019 from Pine River Management, where he was most recently the Chief Information Security Officer. Prior to that, Tom was the Information Security Engineer uh, at that same place. Now, prior to Pine River, Tom was with Ernst & Young as a Cybersecurity Consultant, and Tom holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in Information Security and Forensics from Rochester Institute of Technology. Gentlemen, both welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. Now, great to have both of y'all. So Josh and Tom, both two guys I worked with at Ernst & Young, we've done some, been through some real wars together, so it's a great experience that we had from that. Both of y'all, if your careers progressed over the years, it was great to see a lot of things that we were doing and now being in that Chief Information Security Officer role. So really appreciate having you on the show and be able to share some of your insight today. Thanks, Josh. So just starting off with you, Josh, I mean, that last series that we had with the CISO journey, I thought it was really successful. People really under, wanted to understand some of the strategies for continuing for self-development. How do you continue to move forward? A lot of the things you said last time was really understanding the business and changing your mindset, right? One thing I noticed is they, in cybersecurity training, they talk about packets and, and you know the technology behind things, but you were really getting in towards where 
if in the chief information security officer role, there needs to be a changing of a mindset to be more business focused, to understand the trading, to understand the logic of how decisions are made, what makes the business function, and then being able to put that attacker mindset, that hacker mindset on top of that. And then that's what you're seeing as an effective. But any further thoughts on that area? Yeah, I don't know how much I'm going to repeat myself from the prior episode, but I, I do think there is a shift, especially at the more senior levels of cybersecurity, to understanding the business, understanding how your company makes money. And that's accompanied, I think, by a shift at the more junior levels of cybersecurity into more deep specialization into to different areas, right? And a, a good analogy is you look at the medical field, where years and years ago, you went to the doctor and these days, you've got a doctor for every single part of your body because they all specialize in, you know, one of those things. And if you hyper-specialize at the lower levels, then the people who are at the administrative levels, the hospital administrators, et cetera, they need to generalize more. They need to understand more of the outside influences and be more of a bridge between the technical folks who are living in the zeros and ones and the people who are on the front lines making money, trading, selling widgets, marketing, dealing with legal and regulators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that the CISO, the CISO career, the CISO job is definitely becoming more and more of the business executive and less of a technology leader, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I now have to think, I, earlier in my career, when something comes up, someone wants to do something a certain way, I'd be like, oh, no, no, that sounds insecure. We're not doing that. Now it's very much, okay, yeah, that's insecure. We're not doing that. Let's figure out how to make this work in a way for you that you can still operate and make money and do what you need to do as a business, right? You're, we're not just here to just keep this place secure. We're, make, we're here to keep this place operating and secure. And being able to balance both of those is a challenge I deal with more and more now. Yeah, I think it's not where in the old days you just say, no, that's insecure. We're not going to do that. Now you have to be able to adapt to the business and come up with creative solutions. How to still enable that, but reduce the operating risk where it's manageable. And to do that, you need to understand the business. You understand yeah. the business, yeah. And through, and I think there's the the challenge always too, is you go from the technologist now to understand the business. And then from at that aspect, you're not always included in some of those business meetings where they're discussing the aspects of the business would be nice to hear. And they just push you in that technologist type role. And I guess what are some of the tactics that I think that could get you outside of that would be asking other questions on what's important with the business. When the business does bring out new products or services, are, are there ideas that you're trying to help to enable and, and cut off risk initially, or is it is most of your suggestions in order to say how we need to shut this down or not enable this? I think an attitude too, when dealing with the business means a lot. It's not just from the risk in the technology, but how are you approaching it as a business enablement or some audit tool to shut things down? Does that make sense? I don't know if I explain that. I think so, right? I, I see it as, as like a culture shift that you need to instill into the business, right? You need them to understand why you're there, why it's important, what your concerns are, what you're trying to do, and build that into their day-to-day -day so that they know, right? When a new product's coming out or a new system's being deployed, not only do your procedures say and your policies say that, that they haven't read in two years that they need to work with you on it, but they just know. It's part of the culture. They know they need to engage with you and figure out the right way to do it. And they know that you're a partner that 
is willing to engage and isn't just going to say no, but is going to help them do this in the right way and, and enable them. So I think the culture side at the highest levels of the organization is quite important to do what you're describing. Yeah, I agree with Tom. It's culture is the key word, right? That's what makes companies run. And the way to inject security into the culture of the org has to be from the top down, right? You, you have to get the folks with decision-making power to care about cybersecurity. And that's a challenge because I think traditionally, uh, especially at a lot of smaller organizations, the, the thinking is, you know, of course, cybersecurity is important. That's why I'm going to go hire Josh or I'm going to go hire Tom and they're just going to handle it. Right. And then I don't have to think about it. And th that's just not the reality uh, of how to keep your, your company secure. Um, it's got to be it's got to be part of that culture. And I think one of the things that's really important or, or one of the things that a CISO can do to shift some of that cultural perception is to have real honest discussions about risk ownership. So who owns the risk at your organization? Mm -hmm. It's not a CISO. The business owns the risk, right? Right. They're making decisions to try to grow the company, expand it to different regions, create new products, whatever they're trying to do. Uh, there are risks associated with that. And they own the geopolitical risks and they own the financial risks and they own the regulatory risks. And they got to understand that they own the cyber risk too. And so the job of the, the CISO really is becoming a translator or someone who can inform the business of what these risks really are and what they mean. So that when someone from the business decides to accept a certain risk or to proceed with a particular initiative, despite the risks or to spend a little bit more money on mitigating risk, they're doing that from an informed position. They understand what they're trying to accomplish and, and what the mitigating controls need to be. Um, and so I see that role of being this risk translator, risk explainer or whatnot, helping to uh, spark that cultural shift, right? Because that culture of the business owns the risk I think that's the key, at least in my, in my view and experience. Yeah. And, and I think getting that kind of agreement, we can get agreement on the IT side, who patches that system. You can get an agreement who changes that firewall, but who actually makes business risk decisions on something always gets convoluted and, and so forth. So I could see that asset risk registry. And you talk about who from the business owns that and be able to accurately display that because I think some organizations think the CISO owns the cyber risk in the organization. And you're like, no, my job is just to highlight it and to be able to quantify it here in order for the business to make decisions on it. I don't own it. And, and, and Tom said to make suggestions on alternative approaches, right? We, we mm -hmm. might not say, look, you absolutely can't do this thing that you were planning to do. But here are five other ways to get the same objective completed. But with less risk or whatnot along the way. Yeah. Uh, right. well, and yeah, I think when, so when you're technically minded, when you're putting business cases in, you're just thinking about how I can find something really cool and faster. If I had this said gateway, I can do this and I can pivot into this gateway. I could do that. And I, I think it definitely has its point when you're looking at tools and technology, the ability to do that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when you're a CISO, I think you're taking risks that you have that came up either in an audit or came up in some assessment, or you have some deficiency, or there's something you need to help because there's a merger, there's an acquisition, there's some 
big business event that's occurring that security has to help shepherd uh, along the way. And that those are really where you focus from a strategic perspective and how you report up to management is based on outcomes. You need to show the outcomes and the impact to that risk uh, mitigation. And sometimes it's really hard to just come up with a dollar amount for something. Do you find it easy to come up with a dollar amount for something? I, I find it's really qualitative a lot of times, like reputational risk. When you look at Budweiser right now, rep reputational risk is, can impact significantly in, in different things. And so I, I don't know, how do you measure reputational impact on unknown market events type things? Yeah, it's hard. Josh, you could probably talk more about risk quantification. I know you've done a lot of work and thinking around that. One of my one of my best techniques is just use examples. There's plenty of examples of bad things that have happened to companies as, as a result of cybersecurity incidents. So running through those, doing case studies, doing... I love doing tabletop. We call them war games because it's more fun. But a tabletop walking through what this would actually be like and and, and help quantify that, that, that's how I approach that when I, I found it to be pretty uh, effective. But Josh, interested to hear about your risk quantification uh, thinking. Yeah, I don't know if you're prompting me because you were there for no the first, the first iterations of no. uh, exploring <laughs> risk quantification like seven or eight years ago. It's tough, right? So I'll start by saying risk quantification is absolutely possible. If it wasn't possible, the, the insurance industry wouldn't exist, right? So it's possible. It's really hard. Cybersecurity folks are generally not actuaries, and actuaries exist as a job for a reason. It's not like anyone can just get up and decide, I'm going to quantify risk today. But there are some methods and mechanisms that you can use. A great place to start is with the Doug Hubbard books, How to Measure Anything and How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity to excellent, excellent books. And then he's got a lot of material on his website as well, Excel templates and, and stuff like that. And then there's a huge fountain of new risk quantification products that are hitting the marketplace or have been around for a year, three years, something like that. And I won't mention any specific names, but there are at least five or six of them that claim to quantify your risk. And they may, right? They certainly do a better job than I can by licking my finger and sticking in the air. But how do you use the data that comes out of that model relative to how much effort did you put into building the model? And what I found during the multiple attempts that I've made at, at trying to quantify risk and start making decisions about my cyber program based on risk quantification is it takes a lot of work to build the model. You have relatively low confidence that the model is accurate. Maybe this is just me because I'm hard on myself, but there's a feeling of I'm putting in all this work and I just don't know how accurate it is. And so what I've started to do is rely on the experts, right? I mm -hmm. buy cyber insurance policies. They price those policies a certain way. Generally, your insurance provider is willing to have a chat with you about why they priced the premiums relative to the coverage the way they did for your particular company. And it's really interesting when you fill out an application for cyber insurance for your organization, there are like 20 questions that they ask. And when you sit down yourself and you try to do risk quantification for every possible threat scenario that you can think of, you're coming up with long lists of data points that need to be collected and 
how am I going to capture this data on a weekly basis, monthly basis, et cetera? You're building big Excel models, hundreds of rows long. And somehow the insurance companies can do it with 20 questions. Um, and so I think we've got a ways to go before this becomes standard practice. But I still do believe deep down in my gut, it, it's the future of risk management, right? We're, there, there's going to be a time, maybe not this year, next year, maybe 10 years from now, but there's going to be a time when we figure out a way to, to somewhat commoditize risk quantification uh, and boards are going to start looking for it. CIOs, CISOs, CSOs, they're, they're going to start using it to make decisions. It's just, it seems to me, intuitively at least, a better way to make decisions than by going with your intuition. Yeah, so a quantitative way of doing it. And I guess they get to a point where they have enough on the payouts that they know these are the ranges they're paying out and these are generally the areas we want to focus on. And so they have these broad questions that kind of cover it. Some of the the clients we're talking about talking to have insurability issues. Like it's harder and harder to get cyber insurance anymore. You have to have these controls in place. Right. The deductibles are worse. It's just, yeah, they figured it out, but they got stung. And so the prices of them are going up higher and higher. So I think we're seeing that across the board, right? But that's why I trust them a little bit more than I trust the the other products in the marketplace because they got burned and they adjusted their models. And that's yeah. And what's interesting is I just had I just had a quote from a plumber come out because I found out the pipe in my house was made of this Duraplex stuff and it was made of plastic. And that somehow there's a class action lawsuit on it and it's uh, terrible and it busts. And I had a pipe bust in the house because of it. And they say you have to replace all, all of that. And what's interesting is the insurance companies don't didn't cover it doesn't cover that at all. They see it as some pre-existing thing that was there. There's always this fear that the same thing is going to happen in some cyber intrusion when you actually go to invoke that policy and actually try to get payment out of it, that there was this, oops, you didn't do something right. You didn't cover this right. Or somehow they're going to fight you over the payment. Is that a real fear you think in the industry for some CISOs is, will this actually be there when I need it? Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, of course. But that's just your fear with insurance in general, right? Everyone's experience with insurance, whether it's auto, homeowners, medical, you have a personal experience with how insurance works, and then you try to translate that to the business world. But the reality is these policies pay out, right? They People wouldn't buy them if they didn't. For a long time, I was actually very anti-cyber insurance. Um because I didn't think they had figured out how to price it properly. I thought there were too many exceptions in the terms. Ransomware might not have been covered, and, and then it was covered, but it's a separate rider. And things like prior acts weren't covered. And then you have people talking about, oh, if you're hacked by Russia, then that's an act of war. And so we don't cover acts of war. And yeah. all that stuff at the early stages of the, the cyber insurance game, it's all been sorted out now. And yeah, there may be more changes that are going to be made, but the huge changes that we saw the first five years that cyber insurance or first 10 years that cyber insurance was a thing, we're not seeing so many big changes now. And it's part of the reason I changed my view on insurance being something that's worth it's a, it's a different place. I think the insurers know more about the marketplace. They have more data to go by. They've refined the models. They feel more comfortable writing policies. They won't write policies for companies that 
don't have good cyber posture. I don't know other CISOs listening to this podcast. You, if you don't have MFA, go try to get yourself a cyber insurance policy. You'll see how, see how hard it is. And so that, I think, yeah, it's given me a lot more comfort in the industry as a whole. And I, I think most other folks in my position feel the same. I don't know about Tom, about you, but. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think, I, I don't think you would disagree though, that I, I think I worry less about, like I consider cybersecurity insurance as the very last thing I want to be relying on or, right? Like, obviously this is something that I, so I'm supportive of and I won't comment on my own company's policies and what we do, but I'm much more focused on preventing, (laughs) preventing a a situation where we need to be talking to them. And then that's, oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. It's you buy it, but you hope you never have to use it. Right. Oh yeah. We had it where we had a customer of ours that we knew through a relationship that needed to invoke incident response. And we didn't have contracts with them in place, but they wanted to get contracts done rapidly so we can have the IR team on site. And they couldn't do anything until they invoked the insurance policy. And so the insurance policy had to invoke a law firm. And you couldn't start the IR until the lawyer was assigned and the lawyer came online and told everybody what to do. I had a SWAT team of incident response guys waiting to to jump in. We couldn't do a thing waiting for these processes to kick off in the insurance and so forth. So it was. I don't know if that's the fault of the insurance policy, right? No, I don't. I think I think it's critical though, right? Like if you haven't if you have an incident response company and you have a law firm you would use and they haven't met yet and you're a CISO, like you need to go do that. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, for that, sure. That's a, it's just about being prepared. Yeah. That's why we run tabletop exercises. That's why you look at your incident response plan at least once a year, maybe more often than that. You yeah, need to have a new customer that we didn't have a relationship with and just called us due to personal relationships. And said, and so we could get turned the contract around. It was did their insurance company support RIR services. And so you had to go through the complexity of that. Then they got to get a lawyer actually assigned before the lawyer can actually get on the phone and tell people what to do. At the same time, ransomware is hidden. Um, so you, you can see where those complexities on invocation, you definitely want to work with your provider, go through a red team exercise. We do these with these tabletops. And it's not just a threat-based you know, breach attack simulation type thing, but it's like working through the business. Who would I invoke? I, I was with a big farmer and it was one of their infrastructure support companies, a massive name. If I named it, you'd know them, but massive company. And we're in the middle of an event and I'm, I'm calling, okay, I need to know what's how this network is set up. I need to know where's the firewall, where's the egress point. Here's the address. And they just didn't know. It was like a warehouse of IP addresses. They just, you give me it, I'll look up a ticket but they had no contextual understanding of the network that you were on, that you were defending because they had 500 other networks and it was just to them a ticketing system that they would have to to figure out. That held us up so bad because we couldn't just pull logs. We had to put a ticket in with this vendor and then there's another third party. I don't think people realize the complexity if you have multiple managed services or multiple partners that have key aspects of your programs and trying to get them to work together in an emergency in which you've never worked in that model before, how things just break down horribly. We've seen it at a number of our customer sites. Now, probably at y'all's environments, much more mature, and you've tested that out and so forth. But we deal with a lot of less immature com- uh, companies um, that are still trying to bridge that gap. But it does seem that how you de- have your technology delivery and your cybersecurity ser- services delivery set up really impacts your ability to do things in the middle of an attack, in the middle of some 
a situation which we, you would need to adapt to. Does that make sense? It, it does seem that mix is is critical. Yeah, very much agreed. And practicing it, like you said, because when you get into a big incident like that, it can be tunnel vision. There's a billion things you got to do. How are you going to prioritize how you do them? And if you've practiced this, if you've sat through a tabletop, if you've sat through previous incidents before, if you've done the prep with your IR providers, your lawyers, your insurance companies, at least you get that out of the way and you can deal with the still big mess that you have to deal with. And I like what our background coming from big four consultant from EMY. And, and, and I always valued that time because it just taught you how to structure problems in a different way. I never learned PowerPoint better than Ed Ernst. <laughs> I really didn't even touch PowerPoint that much until I started EMY. And then I found out the way you could just denial a service, the entire firm is to take out PowerPoint.ea. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing would get done anymore if you would just find that as a malicious file and take out PowerPoint, the whole firm would go down. But we were talking about some of the training that we had to go through on, on how to structure, how to frame a problem in front of a customer. Decision enablement, right? Have How do you structure some questionnaire and engagement to get a whole team to come to a decision that they need to come to, but there's so much political headwind that they couldn't honestly do it by themselves. So you come in as a third-party consultant and you help extract information and data collection in order to help them make their decision. And then that turns into a transformation. To me, that was powerful being a part of some of those activities. And I don't think a lot of people in industry ever had to think that way. And so if they did, it would allow you to structure things so much better when operating internally. And I, I don't know, I, I felt that any real person, CISO, uh, having that big four experience really is an accelerator to understanding the business, being able to make that transformation to the business. I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you find that accurate? Yeah, I think it goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning, right? About how you communicate ideas, how you understand the business, understand what other stakeholders in the business who don't think about cybersecurity all day are thinking about how you communicate. PowerPoint is a, it's a great point, right? It's funny, but it's like, it's true. It's being able to communicate an idea, frame the situation. And like you said, enable people to make the decisions they need to make. Really critical. I think Ernst & Young was a big part of, I think for me personally, like I, it was, oh, Josh, you too. You started your career in that type of role. And starting with that base, I think, is what's helped me a lot get to where I am in a CISO role, where I can do that. And that's a big part of the role, just communicating. Yeah. So I started my career as a pen tester, right? And yeah, I was working for UI, but I was doing very technical work. This is my back when pen testing was not a thing yet. And EY mm -hmm. was maybe one of three or four companies that did pen testing. But Growing up through EY and, and the way you grow your career at a consulting firm is you move from delivery into kind of project management and sales. And, and I think that certainly did help with the communication things we're talking about. But I do want to be cautious of labeling that the only path. One thing you and I talked about, Josh, during the last time I was on the podcast was all the different starting points and the different ways to grow and balance out your career. But I, I think the, the real key is balance. It's a good or a great CISO, I think, has the ability to talk to the people that live in the zeros and ones, the ability to talk to the people that are making the top business decisions, and the ability to translate between the two so that they understand one another. And that doesn't necessarily have to come from consulting. Now, for me, that's where I got it, right? It was a really good experience. I wouldn't trade the beginning of my career for 
anything else, I think it, it led to where I am today, but there are many places to start. And there's a lot of research on that too these days, right? I think there's a book, the, the Cybersecurity Career Guide by a, a security practitioner named Alyssa Miller. And there's an, an older security guy looking at something like that and thinking, man, when I started my career, you went into security. That's what you did. You were into cybersecurity, you went into security. Now there are like, I don't know, a hundred different places you can start. You can you can go into third-party risk. You can go into DLP. You can go into identity, analytics, data analytics. It's so many different ways to break that I don't want to be, I don't want to be overly confident saying that consulting is the best path for making it to CISO. That might've been the case 20 years ago. It probably isn't the case now. It's probably just one of many paths. No, I think that's a good point. Uh, it, it, it really is just the experience of having to use those different skill sets as you're coming up uh, from a technical. I, I remember being on that first project with Tom and it was obvious Tom as being junior EMY consultant, but it was obvious that he was not new to the the industry. He had been around for a couple of years. He was, he was highly capable. And he was doing things in Excel. It was like, all right, now this guy really knows what he's doing. That That, that is incredible. <laughs> so I think when you couple- I, that, I confess that I still use some PowerShell scripts that Tom wrote back in the oh, day. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, I do. I would love I to do. see what those are. <laughs> They're my PowerShell profile. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I remember now. And if I could f- find old Excel sheets, I, I probably would, but I don't think they let me keep any old Excel stuff. For whatever reason, I was allowed to take PowerShell from from job to job. Nobody cared about that, but they they <laughs> cared about Excel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think I the point though on having breadth of knowledge is right there though, right? Excel and PowerShell scripts. Excel is not a cybersecurity tool, but but having that and I know Josh, you mentioned earlier talking about like areas that, that people focus on, like having a diverse skill set and an educational background, and they don't. At least when I went to school, they didn't teach cybersecurity and computer science kids how to use. Microsoft Excel in college. No, uh, I learned but, that at Northrop Grumman yeah. and had to take it by myself. And you completely, I, I don't know who said it, but someone said Excel is the second best tool for everything. Right. That is so true. Right. Yeah. And so I would say anybody looking to move up the CISO rank is to get certified on Microsoft Excel <laughs> and tables and so forth. I don't know if I go that far. So yeah, I, I, don't have, I don't have any certifications, but <laughs> certainly, certainly know how to use it. Oh yeah. And, and, but I remember when Tom, we were on that big project out in California, right. And we were going back and forth, East coast, West coast. And he wrote some really fancy uh, Excel and wrote the VBA code on it. It was just, it was phenomenal. And then you came in, Josh, and you had your methodology and the output of that was just phenomenal. We did a presentation, Tom and I, on this project in um, FSI Tech Miami. What was it? 2016, I think. Probably. Yeah. 2019, one of the two sometime down there in Miami. And it was a great, it was great success. We had 250 people in the audience and it was really about an encryption strategy. It was just, how do you take all your infrastructure tools? How do you determine where do you use encryption? Where do you don't? Some infrastructure tools already had encryption for date things at rest. Uh, do you need to buy a data at rest and data in motion and so forth? So it was just going through the different permutations and just sitting down there and writing the methodology and then having Tom where he wrote the code and it graphed it and it actually showed the bubbles were bigger for the risk. It displayed the risk in a manner that was easily consumable where we can speak to him. 
And you remember time we would just move the bubble over. Okay. You don't think yeah. that's a five. Okay. Let's move that over. It's a four. And, and so it wasn't just us assessing them. It was a self-assessment, but it was done in a strict methodology that the tool enforced. And then it came to this great conclusion. And I think in the most part on that client, we first onboarded and what the CIO and the CISO were mad at each other and were yelling at each other. And we, so we got brought in to solve a dispute between these two C-suites and didn't know that's what we were walking into. But then having that intellectual model to try and come to the answer and help them come to the answer was exactly a combination of technical skills and psychotherapy. It was just like psychology. It was just this really challenging, you were dealing with emotions and you were dealing with the actual project itself. It was quite interesting. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah. And which goes back to what it's like to be a CISO. Like you deal with all those things. That's mm. And what I like so much is what Josh was saying before when on his journey, he did the, when the universe was talking to him and he kissed his daughter goodnight on a Sunday and she said, see you Thursday. And boy, I think we all related because we were all on planes during that time period. But also that we would implement these uh, transformations or these cybersecurity programs for customers. And we weren't there two years later to see where it was at. Because, yeah. and, and that's one of the things he was saying that caught me. It was like, yeah, that, that's what, one thing I do miss about, about doing that and being in, in a company doing cybersecurity rather than consulting. It's just seeing the actual transformation and being able to go, remember when we only did this? Remember when we only did it this way? And so I think that's one of the uh, joys y'all get when, when you're creating something and you're driving something, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea that you have a longer time horizon is... There's a lot of benefit to that. Right? Yeah. When, when you get a chance to turn around and look back. Right. You When, when you get a chance to pause. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, which doesn't happen all too often where you're able to sit back and pause. But you How look long did it take us to schedule this recording? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to get scheduling and meetings going on. I, I, I think when you look at the move it vulnerability that just came out recently where that affects file transfers, we had some companies that were impacted by that. So there's a zero day vulnerability on a managed file transfer platform that you use for conducting business. So how do you quantify that risk to management? How do you have the processes that continue to deal with these zero days? It, it just seems to be a constantly evolving thing. And there's, like you were saying, Josh and, and Tom, is that there's multiple ways to get where you got to be a, a chief information security officer. And so there's different avenues you can take. Is there anything particularly, have you heard of these CISO boot camps? You had the Carnegie Mellon or any of those. Do you know anything like that or as an accelerator or what's your experience in, in that area? I've heard of them, but I don't have any experience. I, I haven't attended none of them. Tom, what about you? Yeah, I haven't either, but they, I'm not familiar with anyone specific program or anything like that, but I do think it's probably a good way for someone who has a more, maybe a deep knowledge in one specific area or a couple specific areas to get that broader view in those other areas that they might not be familiar with that, that they would need to be able to support as a CISO. So I'm sure they're valuable in that way. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Again, like I was saying before, it's about that balance mm -hmm. and an important, important quality of a, a CISO, I think is also to be a bit self-aware. So you have to know where your balance is off and adjust, right? Add the counterweights wherever you need to add. So if, if you're super technical, maybe you need some help in the soft skills, right? If you're a great team builder and, and team leader, 
perhaps you need some help on the technical side. You just have to be able to, to look inward and say, all right, where am I strong? Where am I lacking? Because a CISO, you have a lot of balls in the air as a CISO. It's, it, it truly is a juggling act. And you make decisions, you make recommendations. Those things all have impacts. And oftentimes the impact is to make my organization more secure. And that's a good thing for a CISO to be doing. But there's also the equal and opposite reaction of when I make my company more secure, I'm adding friction. I'm maybe putting extra work on the help desk. I'm taking an infrastructure project or an application development project and, and causing it delays or causing it to shift directions. So you have to know how to manage those types of things, communicate with those stakeholders. Um, you have to know when to back down and when to stand strong. It's important to find that balance. So again, I don't know what's taught at those boot camps, but if they're technical boot camps, that's great for people who are strong managers and have good soft skills, go do it. If they're separate boot camps for people who are really great at pen testing or red teaming or, or blue team or whatever, and they just need the soft skills, they need to know how to make presentations, they need to learn how to use Excel, then take that boot camp. Yeah. Um, but really try to find the balance. Yeah, that makes no sense. I think there's some self-development and and understanding there's some managerial courses that you ought to so, so, uh, seek out. I took one of the courses at Wharton School of Business when I was at CoFence. They said, we need to make sure we have executive level training. I, I looked at several organizations. I could have gone Harvard, Yale, could have done a lot of these executive leadership ones. But one of them is I was managing a team globally. So I had like 76 people in five different countries. So I, I had a decently big footprint. And so I took, I went to Wharton because Wharton to me had a better reputation for entrepreneurial and startups and, and so forth. So they were really on the innovation side. And it was interesting what I learned from that was how to communicate internationally with other languages and what's important, what's values that are important and so forth. And it was just an eye-opening experience to anyone that had to operate internationally. And they made you first take three tests. You had to take this one test where they would show you the face of uh, someone who's Asian, who's African-American, who's white and so forth. And it would ask you to grade what their emotion is and see if you're good at, at uh, what nationalities are you good at judging someone's emotion? And they would ask you, are they happy? Are they sad? Are they angry? Any of these items that you're able to identify. Now, granted, one of them that it should be just chilling because that, to me, the guy was just sitting there chilling and they didn't have it chilling. It was only mad or angry. And I think they they skewed the test because there's a lot of guys I just thought was sitting there chilling. And it was uh, interesting in our ability to understand what different body language meant. And it also translated over to emojicons. So they had all these lists of emojis and they said, what does this one mean? And it was a guy who had squiggly eyes. It had a straight mouth. And I looked at it. I thought, man, that means he's drunk. Do you want to go get drunk? If you received a message with that emoji on it, what, what would you think? It, it looks like you're intoxicated. But what we find out, no, in Japanese, that's happy because they show emotion in their eyes, not in their mouth. So we show emotion in our mouth. So you see a happy face. But to have that means completely something the opposite in Japan and has different cultural connotations, even in Russia and so, so other Baltic countries. So it was just really fascinating to see how the different cultures express different items. 
And that's why they said, look, if you're an executive operating internationally, just don't send emoji cons. We could show you all these tables, how they're different. I just, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I would just not send emoji cons. It, it always seems to blow up. But I thought those were fascinating courses because it, it makes me understand that relationship with people and enabling a high performing team. I think that's what we were all focused on. How do you get people that love to come to work? They're there, they rely on each other. They, they, they don't just come to work because they're supposed to, and that's the paycheck, but they come to work because if not, I let Tom down or I let Josh down. And they actually don't want that greater than there's some kind of identity with the company. And that's where I think we can, people start to grow. Does that make sense for y'all? Is that something y'all experience as well? I'll say from my side, that's people development, career development, how to manage high-performing teams. That's a, to Josh's point about before about like finding where you're, where you need more development and being self-aware. Like that's one of the areas for me that's been the biggest focus over the last two years mm -hmm. and an area where I've gone targeted training with at West Point for leadership development and some other opportunities that, that my current firm has given me. Yeah. Knowing where those gaps are and filling my, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I think I take the mentality of if I, I want to be proven wrong, I, I, I want someone to honestly tell me, hey, you think this in this way, but you consider this and me to learn something new. I respect that so much because, but well, you can't have a spirit that at all, or you have to realize that you, you don't know it all. You don't even come close to knowing it all, but having the ability to be self-aware makes a lot. I know pretty much everything, so I think that's maybe you don't, but no, Josh knows everything too because you okay. both work for me, so that's just how it works. <laughs> Got it. Okay, there you go. That is how it works, and my mic just died. Just keep talking while I get the batteries changed. Another important thing about being a CISO is being prepared to expect yeah. the unexpected and and being able to handle them. Yeah, have have spare batteries on hand. That's yeah. why I have spare batteries on hand. <laughs> and I have the ability to edit. All I got to do is lose it. <laughs> there you go. That's the true, uh, the true thing. The ability to edit is uh, how it Josh came to right uh, It's powering up. It's better than Zoom dying at 45 minutes because you were not licensed. <laughs> I <hate laughs> okay, can you all hear me? Back up. We got you. Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. See, I was prepared. I had extra batteries sitting right on the side in case that ever happens in a show. All right, Tess. All right. Man, I really appreciate Josh and Tom having both of y'all on the show today and focusing on what that CISO journey is and just being able to talk about uh, some things that we did in the past. Anything uh, closing you'd like to have for the audience just to, to, to be able to focus on or what are some of the parting thoughts? All right. From my point of view, I think the, the topics we were discussing about being like well-rounded and having a varied experience and, and varied background, I think that's super important to, to be a CISO. I think that's the biggest takeaway I took or took from this. And Josh's earlier point doesn't doesn't mean starting in one starting your career in one place matters, you know, versus starting it somewhere else. It's about the journey. It's about the various experiences you get and and being self-aware and knowing where you need to grow more. I, I think that's what I took away the most. Yeah, good point. And you, Josh? Yeah, look, I don't I, don't, I hate to repeat myself, but there, there are many paths. I think we need more CISOs, right? That's absolutely clear. Every company needs someone who is focused on cybersecurity. And because of that, I just encourage anyone listening who is thinking about how to start the journey to stop thinking about how to start the journey and just start the journey. 
do whatever it is that interests you now learn pen testing learn public speaking learn whatever it is that really interests you get good at it and then pivot to the next thing that you need to get good at and keep building and building those skills ask for help along the way um one of the awesome things about the security industry is it's relatively small and it's still somewhat built on relationships and so ask for help the person you're asking if they can't help you they probably know someone else who can but we need more CISOs we need more security practitioners we need more people in cybersecurity overall so if you're thinking about it if you're on the precipice just go for it give it a shot yeah yeah absolutely I, I think risk management keying in on different books with that knowing the terminology comes around I think all that comes together and is a uh, uh, definitely that well-rounded. And yes, there's de- I, I agree. There's definitely multiple ways to climb that hill and uh, to to be able to be productive in that, that different area. I think some of the people that we know, some of the people trying to get into the industry are like, well, how do I get my foot in the door? A CISO is not just going to hire me after I just got a certification or I just got my degree. They They always want all these different years of experience. So I see on the bottom end of the stage too, is if I could just get in, get a year or two of experience, I think I'm off the ground, but nobody wants to hire a first year brain surgeon. So nobody wants to hire a first year cybersecurity person. So it's like, how do you actually get into the door and they start that? And I think that's a challenge for them as well. And and that's actually a good message for the CISOs who may be listening, right? For, For the folks who've already made it to that level, hire those people, hire, hire the people with drive. Right. You know, mm-hmm. every team is different. Right. The teams that I've had have been relatively small. I don't have space or I didn't have space for someone 100 percent dedicated to third party risk management. Right. You need right. people who can do a couple of different things. So it's more of a mid career kind of spot. But there are plenty of big teams where if you've got capacity for entry level, do it right it's there's nothing better than than a motivated employee who wants to learn who wants to grow i think the key to that though is you have to have someone who's good at mentoring and then so those junior people come in they can't just be okay i'm here and here's a book there's got to be some kind of mechanism and somebody assigned to them to mentor them and drive them i think the company needs to invest in that so i think here's another message to the sisters instead of just saying hey i'd want some junior guy to come in and we can mentor and bring up there has to be some investment in that side to say not only am i going to do that but i'm going to put them through this training i'm going to have this kind of check-ins i have this kind of program and then i think it's going for everybody wouldn't you agree oh yeah absolutely grow people. Yeah. And and there's so many people that are just willing, they're loyal to the company. They want to see the outcome of the company be positive. It's not just about their career. They're not just looking for raises. I, I have uh, within our team, it's not just about the money. It's about the leadership. Do they trust their leadership that they're making sound decisions and they're there for them? They're going to fight for their uh, cause when it comes to management and, and overall bonuses and pay and so forth. But there's also this feeling is that the company is the expectation high from them, but the investment is low. Like there's no training. They can't go to conferences. Nobody's allowed to uh, go back to college and get reimbursement. None of that is there. Yet somehow management can just thinks that you're on the evening going to get state certified. And then 
you can see there's this two-way street and that there's a lot of people that just want to be part of a team. They want to see that they're doing something great and that management hears them and invests in their training and their future. Well, man, I appreciate both of y'all coming on the phone today or on the podcast today. And uh, Tom Baxley, always great to see you, my man. And next time I'm in New York, uh, I definitely want to hook up with you. And Josh, I know you're in the New York area too as well. And uh, can't wait to see both you guys again. And I uh, appreciate y'all being on the call. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. You, Josh. That's right. All right, everybody. Stay secure and I'll talk to you soon. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.